0: Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group.
1: Yes, hello, I'm James Scotland and this is Supply Circles. Today I'm very excited, really excited. Not only are we going to address a fascinating issue that concerns business and supply chain managers everywhere, but I also get to chat with a fascinating and interesting human being. I'm talking with my friend of 25 years and we're going to talk about the future, not our future. That's already predetermined to be a future of fine food, thick steaks, good wines and long chats late into the night. No, today we're going to deep dive into a key part of supply chains that we rarely think about but that impacts all of us and we're going to have a look, about, look at the changes that are ahead. My guest is Michael Kilgariff, the Chief Executive Officer of Roads Australia and that's R-O-A-D-S as in Roads and Highways. Hello Michael, welcome to the show.
0: James, thanks for the invitation, really appreciate it, great to see you again.
1: Over the last few months, Supply Circles has looked at many parts of supply chain management. We've looked at the keys to modern-day procurement with Andy Brightmore. We've looked at the first steps to decarbonize your business with Dr Kate Brooks at operating structured supply chains in times of ambiguity and much more. We discovered there's a lot to what's called supply chains in our business, and we've discovered it impacts many parts, if not every part of our business. But let's be serious. Underpinning it all is the fundamental need of supply chains to move goods. Jonathan Kempe was recently on the show talking about the future of the global shipping container industry. And today I want to add to that by talking about what's happening uh, on the ground. I want to talk about the future of cars, of trucks, roads and particularly the infrastructure and the planning that is going into preparing for our future. Moving ourselves, our staff and materials and our finished goods across town and across the country is critical to the success of our business. But the way we do this is changing rapidly because the way we live and the way we work has changed. From the days when everyone worked 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, and shopped on weekends at supermarkets, we moved to where most of us are working from home for most or all of the time, to online shopping for everything from computers to home goods to nightly dinners and McDonald's and even alcohol, and all of it is getting delivered. These things have changed the way we use our roads and our transport, it's changed peak traffic flows, and it's changed the way we run our businesses and our supply lines. In fact, many businesses now need to design and manage last mile deliveries and they need to manage returns via a process called reverse logistics. We need to move goods into and out of suburbs rather than just into and out of warehouses and supermarkets. And there's more. New cars, such as electric vehicles, require new infrastructure. And net zero carbon targets mean that roads need to be built to achieve net zero. If we as business people are going to hit zero, we need uh, our deliveries to also be at zeros. So there's a lot to talk about. These are big issues. And we need a living legend to unpack it for us. Cue Michael Kogaroff, the man, the legend. Michael is the perfect person to chat about this. He's a trained economist. He's run businesses. He's worked in policy and strategy. He's worked with large transport operators, port operators, and large logistic operations. And for the last few years, he's been the CEO of Roads Australia, as many of these issues have become clearer. so Michael. It sounds like you and Rose Australia have an important part to play in the building of resilient supply chains. Do you think I've sufficiently confused our listeners as to what the issues are that you're facing?
0: Look, I, I think it's all of that, but it's also a little bit more in that um, from a roads perspective or from a transport perspective, uh, the public policy debate now is much more around uh, the mobility of goods and people. So it's not so much about... Uh, how we move them on roads, it's basically how we move them from A to B and that can involve roads, it can involve rail and, of course, um, from a logistics perspective, it even involves uh, white vans and even people delivering uh, goods to shops and businesses on trolleys. So it's much more now around mobility. But the other thing that, of course, is happening is that there's a number of different policy um, issues that are emerging at the same time, and that is that, of course, we've now got a big focus on uh, zero emissions and uh, emissions reduction, zero emissions vehicles, but at the same time, and, of course, that involves uh, electric vehicles and other um, zero emission uh, sources such as hydrogen, but at the same time, we've also got this fascinating thing emerging with connected and automated vehicles, Uh, so... While we're also talking about electric vehicles, we're also talking about how these vehicles that are actually going to be connected to each other and even automated in the future, how they're going to actually move around the system and how they'll move both goods and people around our, our cities and around the country. So some really fascinating issues that are emerging now um, around this whole mobility issue.
1: Yeah, it is fascinating. I remember uh, before COVID years ago, you and I were uh, at a Logan City Council in Brisbane meeting where uh, you had some engineers talking about just simply changing roads and the exits and egress, or the egress uh, and the entrance to highways can change how long a travel time is. That's just the starting point. But then when you start talking about the stuff that you're talking about, it's quite a complex issue. Hmm. I wanted to ask about, did your training, if I remember correctly, at uh, ANU in economics, and Shane Rogers, who's our chief operating officer, you know Shane, he recently uh, wrote an article uh, where he said that we don't know enough about economics as a population. We need to understand economics a bit more. He said where social and economic reform is charging up the agenda, we need to understand the nature of wealth creation and job creation because mm. this is all about having an economic model underpinning the solutions that we're going to to need in other words uh, all the issues that you're talking about need to move past the political or a, or mm. a opinion type thing into a hard economic model one of the issues that you're facing of course is that a lot of infrastructure is funded by taxes that are based around f- fuel the fuel excise mm. cars and if we take that out of the equation, it's difficult to fund it. How are you looking at those sort of issues? How are you looking at the future of funding infrastructure?
0: Yeah, look, um, great question. I mean, fundamentally, economics for me is about the best allocation of resources, really. And uh, resources, of course, uh, are people, but it's also uh, taxpayers' dollars and its and its effort. Um, it's an interesting one when it comes to fuel excise because. Um, the the fuel excise that is levied in Australia, which is largely, um, I guess, hidden, if you like, in that most people don't really actually understand how much fuel excise they pay. There's no uh, real um, then, I guess, connection between where the fuel excise is levied and where it's spent. And with the emergence of electric vehicles, we're going to see less and less fuel excise actually being levied. So while we've now got... Uh, Fuel excise is levied. It goes into a major, into consolidated revenue and then is allocated by governments. Uh, There's now a shortfall uh, between what's required and what's being spent, especially around issues such as maintenance. Countries like Norway, which have had a very, very aggressive and successful policy of encouraging the uptake of EVs to the extent that most of the cars that are now sold in Norway are actually electric vehicles, are now reaching crunch point in terms of the fact that now the fuel excise that was levied previously to actually pay for the roads that these cars drive down uh, is diminishing and diminishing rapidly. So we need to come up with a better way to be able to, I guess, fund the infrastructure that we need to ensure that these cars, whether they be automated uh, or they be EVs or both, how they move around the network. So that's going to be a massive issue. And Some of the governments like Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia um, have already started to address this issue where they're going to try and levy, um, I guess, a a user pays approach to the the use of EVs. Now, that's going to be difficult um, in that obviously we want to, on the one hand, encourage the uptake of electric vehicles, so we want to keep them as cheap as possible, but on the other hand, we also need to put in place some of those longer-term policies that are going to deal with some of the ramifications of the uh, growth of the EV market in Australia. So there's some really interesting policy work going on around that now.
1: Yeah, that uh, the Norway issue is interesting, isn't it? Because uh, uh, they encouraged through fiscal policy the purchases of electric vehicles and discouraged internal combustion engine vehicles, and now all of a sudden they're saying, well, hang on, that fiscal policy was good short-term but long-term. Yeah. It's creating some issues. Uh, I want to get to those bigger issues that you, you mentioned at, uh, at the start shortly, but let's just stay here for a minute. One of the challenges for you must be that, if I understand it correctly, that, you know, and you've got to work with federal, state, and local councils. Uh, I read mm. where there's 550 local councils in Australia that look after about 75% of Australia's road network. And it's so it's complex anyway. There's five states and two, three territories, every mm. five uh, hundred and fifty councils, one federal government that changes every four years. How do you sort of work your way through that to try and get a, a policy that is um, is coherent and and makes sense, or do we just stumble along as we always have?
0: <laughs> well, it, it's a it's a combination of a number of different things. I think that um, generally good policy should be a policy that's adopted by any government regardless of their political colour now obviously they will bring a certain perspective to particular policy issues that you need to be aware of and try to deal with but generally we just try to develop what we consider to be good public policy that's in the interests of both uh, of australia both from an economic and social perspective and um, look There was a Labor government in Victoria. There is a Labor government in Victoria that was the first to introduce some of those road user charges. Uh, New South Wales, of course, um, a Liberal national government also followed suit. Um, So good policy really should apply regardless of what the political colour of the government is. But, I mean, you're dead right in saying that we've got that Commonwealth government who generally, from a funding perspective, is the uh, provider of the funds We've got state governments who are generally, and I'll say generally because obviously there's some crossover, are generally the governments that spend those funds maintaining the infrastructure that we own and also give some funding to local governments in addition to their own revenue to maintain their own road network. But it's a, it's a, complex, uh, it's a complex system when you start to think about a national road network that respects neither state boundaries or local government boundaries, and yet everybody expects that that infrastructure will be maintained to a certain standard.
1: I, I think, uh, I think back in all the years I was frustrated when I was running businesses with government regulations getting in my way, and then I think about the challenges that you've got, and I feel like I, I was whinging for no reason. I think you've got a, a big task on hand, um, although far be it from. Far be it from me to winch for no reason. Um, the, the, the obvious question from there is, are we ready for changes? Because, you know, governments around the world struggled with Uber coming in with Airbnb. Um, technology changes create problems with old style of regulations. Are we in Australia ready for the technology changes that you flagged ahead? Are we in a position that we can, we can manage it? And how's it, how's that relates to the rest yeah. of the world?
0: And, and what will it look like um look I, I think we are and and certainly um, you know as as we speak cop 27 is um, is currently being held and there's uh, lots of debates going on around uh, reducing emissions uh, what what we're going to see in Australia I think is that we're, we're lagging behind in terms of the uptake of electric vehicles but that's actually going to drive more than just issues with more EVs on the roads and, and what we're going to do with road funding. Because what that's also going to drive is this convergence between transport, energy and technology, where the energy system, which is largely developed similar but completely differently to the transport system, in that we're both they're both networks, they've both actually been rolled out over a considerable amount of time. Lots of money has been spent on them, but there's not a lot of convergence between them. So what we're going to be seeing in the future is effectively as we've got electric vehicles running around the system, uh, both drawing down and also putting energy back into the energy market, the energy system is going to have to adapt to that and the technology that we're going to need both in terms of making sure that these vehicles are paying to the infrastructure, but also how we manage that, uh, that use of the energy system in the, in the energy market. I mean, one of the interesting things about the electricity market, of course, is that while roads are designed to drive two ways, the electricity system is designed for the energy to flow from the point of generation to the point of use, be it domestic or commercial. But what's going to happen in the future is that you're going to need that two-way flow because you're going to have embedded generation, but you're also going to have that mobile generation of, um, of EVs running around the system. And so for me, this is probably going to be one of the big changes that the energy system is going to have to deal with, uh, not only in terms of renewables, but in terms of how we're going to deal with all of these mobile batteries running around the network because, at the moment, they tend to, in my view, they tend to uh, be focused um, a little bit in, in the short term. They run on five-year, uh, um, I guess, regulatory regimes. It's probably a little bit too long nowadays, in that we don't really know what it's going, what the system's going to look like in five years' time. So, look, I think we're adequately placed to do it, and we can do it. But yeah, there does need to be a little bit more focus on some of those issues
1: that we're talking about. Um, I, you know, I, I just love this whole idea, and, and let's talk about that in a sec, but this whole idea that uh, electric vehicles, battery, ve- battery vehicles have got stored power uh, and it doesn't just burn energy like we do with, um, with carbon-based fuels. Uh, Someone explained it to me is imagine that uh, you had... Five thousand cars sitting outside the Pentagon in in uh, the US. Well, that's five thousand battery packs sitting there, and the car's smart enough to say, "I need thirteen percent charge to get back to my home." So here, have sixty percent of my battery power because I don't need it until I get home. So you got yeah. five thousand cars throwing power into a net- network and only keeping enough to get home because the car's smart. It's a, a completely different way of looking at at it, and it really shows how dumb modern vehicle, our uh, current vehicles are we're still using 1890 technology of, mm. of press gas making an explosion and driving some clunky gears my car's pretty smart but it's still just basically six thousand you know explosions every yeah. minute um to drive a, a clunky gear system new cars will really be smart hey uh, before we get any any further um one of the things that every se- sector is struggling with is skilled employees um and a lot of industries are poaching from other industries, you know, we're poaching similar ones. I would imagine as an industry organisation, you're trying to figure out how how you're going to have enough skilled skilled staff in as we build the infrastructure of the future?
0: Yeah, very much so. And in fact, um, that capacity issue that you just raised there uh, is quite a big issue. I mean, as you know, uh, all governments have got massive transport infrastructure programs underway. We've got Um, tunnels uh, underway in every major capital, uh, bridges, roads, um, significant upgrades and um, improvements to rail networks. And so this is an industry that's under a lot of pressure uh, to deliver and certainly coming out of COVID it it hasn't backed up. Infrastructure Australia a couple of years ago forecasted that um, by now we would be short about 100,000 people, as in that there would be 100,000 jobs that would not be filled. Um, now, the mining industry at the moment says that they have about 70,000 jobs that won't be filled and so effectively what's happening is, is that all of these different infrastructure industries are looking to the others to or, or even within the industry to each other's companies to try and get the resources that they need. So there's some big issues coming up in terms of um, skilled migration, uh, making sure that we've got training to uh, deliver on on the infrastructure promises that we've made. But even in terms of, you know, getting back to EVs, the fact that if we're actually now going to increase the number of electric vehicles in the industry, we're going to need electricians to be installing all the the charging points. We need auto electricians or similar uh, to be able to actually maintain these cars. Uh, There's some significant skills challenges that we've got Right now, but a lot more coming over the horizon.
1: I do some work in the uh, in the defence industry, uh, building a defence network in in Western Sydney, and they're saying they're going to need thousands of of new new people in the defence industry, not just in defence, but in Mm -hmm. defence. uh, but you're also going to uh, need people in construction as we rebuild uh, after COVID. But to do that, we need people in the mines to take to to, to operate the mines. It's just a, a fascinating area, and I think there's big challenges yeah. uh, ahead. And meanwhile, of course, every single small business is saying, "I can't get, I just can't get skilled staff anyway." Uh, yeah. So we've got this challenge of current staff versus the the new skills, of the future, and all of it is coming to a head. Yeah, um, we've
0: got some very unique economic challenges at the moment: low unemployment, high inflation, uh, high inflation, and um, uh, you know that's um, going to pose some really um, considerable issues for the government.
1: Will that slow down the infrastructure build? Or will that slow down what your industry is doing? You know, re, re, rethinking the way it's going to work in the future.
0: Well, look, it's possible. I mean, the forward estimates are only ever four years. So anything that's basically forecasted to be spent beyond four years is only, uh, you know, technically a promise. Um, But there is so much infrastructure underway at the moment that you can't really actually get halfway through a project and stop. All you can do is maybe expand out the timeline. And generally I've got to say that the industry is not completely opposed to the idea that governments actually stretch it out a bit. Um, just to make sure that from a capacity perspective it can be delivered. Um, But look, um, the the billions of dollars forecasted to be spent over the next 10 years, we expect will be done because these projects, uh, you know, have been talked about for a long time and many of them are now actually underway.
1: So it's going to happen. It's all going to happen.
0: Look, it it will happen. But one of the things that you did see in the budget that the – Commonwealth Government handed down a few weeks back was the fact that they actually did just push out some of the timelines for some of these jobs and look from an industry perspective as I said we're not opposed to that because sometimes let's face it projects in terms of timelines um, are adjusted according to um, you know other needs other than what uh, is actually physically possible to deliver. And the fact that a number of projects go over time and over budget is perhaps uh, a good example of um, how that happens. Let's
1: talk about uh, cars for a second and then we'll move on to some other big issues that pick up on what you've just been talking about, uh, I think. The, the thing that fascinates me most about motor vehicles is that we've got this this love of, we, we have a current love of owning cars. Um uh, and yet we don't use them very well. I was, I was reading somewhere that uh, in Europe, 92% of the time the car's parked, 5% of the time it's driving, and 1.6% of the time it's looking for for parking. Um, in London, there's, oh, this is staggering. In London, there are 27 million trips every day across London, 27 million. And about half of them are in motor vehicles. The rest are in walking, uh, cycling, or public transport. Um There are cars in Australia. The average car in Australia travels 11,000 kilometres, so about 1,000 kilometres a month, not very much. We have massive congestion. We've got 29% congestion in Melbourne, 34% in in Sydney, 38% in Vancouver. Um, All this means that we don't use our cars very well, and there seems to be this emergence of an idea that we don't need to own cars anymore, the emergence of, Uh, mobility on demand uh, and mobility as a service. The idea that after a while I'm looking at the cost of fuel, I'm looking at how I'm living my life, I'm getting my TV on demand, I'm getting everything on demand, and after a while you start saying, hang on, why do I have my car sitting there? Why don't I just have mobility on demand? What's that about? Is that emerging? Is that a real thing?
0: Well, look, at. may come as a surprise to you and your listeners that as the CEO of Road Australia, I actually do not even own a car. Um, Now, my wife does if I need to go down to Bunnings on the weekend. I've always got the option to be able to do that. But uh, I'm fortunate. I live near a railway station. My work is near a railway station. I catch the train or um, or, or use other ways of, of getting around. And for me, that actually came about four years ago when my lease on my car came up. And I just um, let it go for a couple of months thinking I'd get around to it and then eventually realised that, in fact, I didn't need a car. And uh, so for me, it's real. Um, Look, I I think in the future or in the the very near future, um, it's going to be a significant issue, I think, when we talk about connected and automated vehicles as well in that do we really actually, if connected and automated vehicles are actually going to be a solution, do we actually still just want the same thing except you're just not driving it? And I think personally that we will see uh, a much bigger focus on the idea of, um, of uh, joint mobility, if you like. If uh, people don't need to own a car, they can actually um, order one in or um, catch public transport or, you know, get a scooter or, or whatever it might be. Um that, I think, is what the transport system of the future will look
1: like. Yeah, I think so. It uh, makes, makes, makes sense to me. I, I think one of the things in COVID was the same thing that you went through where people were, were sitting at home a lot and looking at their cars saying, hang on, why do I have mm. $100,000 tied up in, in, a, in a vehicle that I don't use? And then Uber makes things easier and those sort of things where you just mm. ring up and say, come and come and move me. Um, after the break, let's talk about... Uh, those things, you know, future mobility and what the future looks like. Back soon.
0: If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at AIgroup.com.au. That's B-I-G at AIgroup.com.au.
1: Hey, Michael, this is a good chat. I'm enjoying it. One of the things that uh, I've heard talked about is this idea of the use of the curb. What's all that Mm.
0: about? Well, the the curb side, especially in a CBD, is actually quite a – is quite an important social and also economic asset. And we're having increasingly a lot more debates around the idea of do we allow people to actually park uh, on the curb? Uh, if so, how do we charge for that? Um, should curbs be more about actually just picking up and dropping off? Um, how do we actually use the curb to make sure that we maximise even our freight network? And so curbside policy uh, doesn't sound very interesting, but it's in fact one that all um, city uh, councils in particular are devoting quite a lot of their attention to, to make sure that they keep the traffic flow moving in the CBD and that people aren't just basically parking on streets and really at the end of the day not actually delivering any benefit other than congesting the street.
1: Should we still have, you know, are cars parking in the city, parking, or should you know some cities have said you can't come in. You have to use public transport. Is that likely to be the future of Australia, where we don't actually we don't see cars as the main form of mobility?
0: Yeah. Look, my, my personal view is is that you don't need to be parking your car in the on the curbside in the CBD. Um, the curbside should be utilised for basically maximum social economic benefit and that economic benefit is all about the freight um, and how do we make sure that um, all of those, you know, the the, the the shops, the restaurants, the bars, all of those important things that are part of a uh, cosmopolitan lifestyle that um, they're well and truly catered to. But um, it's, it's really a waste to have people parking on the kerb uh, for hours of the day where the car's not being used. And unfortunately, neither is the curb.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Utilizing uh, the resources for the benefit of everyone. Mm. Well, you're talking about um, connected vehicles before, uh, and you know, it's one of my favourite subjects. This idea about what the the car of the future looks like. I've I've heard an electric vehicle described as being an iPad on on wheels. It's it's basically this this computer, you know, that went from a mainframe, then onto a laptop, then onto our watches, then into our hands, and now it's a car and it's not like a a car of the the past in fact someone once said to me that the electric vehicle of the of the next few years will have as much connection to the cars of the past as uh, a uh, record player you know the, the, the old lps has to spotify there's just no real connection apart from the basic function is the same what do you think of when we when we talk about electric vehicles
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I was over in the US um, a few weeks back and went to the Detroit Motor Show where Ford had their F-150 Lightning uh, on display and actually they were taking people around a circuit driving in it and the acceleration of that vehicle was just absolutely incredible. It was basically zero to 100 uh, kilometres an hour in around four seconds. It was, um, the, the, the effect is instantaneous but the interesting thing is that The Ford F-150 Lightning is roughly the same size as their uh, internal combustion engines. So what you're finding is that the Americans have still got incredibly big cars. In fact, they call them trucks, and they should because they are. Um, It's just that they're becoming electric. So I think that's an American phenomenon. I don't know whether we'd see it in Australia as much, but... um, Look, it's for all the reasons I mentioned before as well about the fact that you've now got these massive batteries that are are running around the network, both drawing down and putting uh, power back into the system. Uh, it, it's just going to be a completely different dynamic.
1: The the owners of Ford 150 Lightnings, you know, your traditional American big car-owning tradies, are saying they love it much more than the old one. The old one had two tonnes of steel at the front and a light back. And so trying to manage this beast uh, was difficult. This has got batteries in the centre of the of the body and it mm. handles apparently beautifully with a stack load of power. And they're saying, we love it to work with, but we love taking it off-road yeah. and on the weekends. It's just a great vehicle. And a surprise for they sold out uh, a used production in something like 23 seconds online. It um, vehicles different. Uh, are, are they likely to be better for roads i'm back to roads again because you are roads australia yeah uh, is, is it better to be is that going to be better for the roads are they going to need less maintenance when you don't have this clunky old vehicle chewing up the rear ends of the cars with the weight at the front
0: or something uh, look i i look from an environmental perspective uh and, and emissions perspective certainly yes but not in, not in terms of the wear and tear on a road. I don't think it's going to make a lot of difference. I mean, a car that can accelerate to 100 k's an hour in four seconds is still going to do a bit of damage to the, uh, to <laughs> don't the road. Tell
1: yeah. Yeah. Don't tell me you're driving around. Don't tell me you're driving around. They gave you the keys in Detroit. They did do no, that. Un-
0: unfortunately not, no. In fact, they wouldn't let me behind the steering wheel. But um, it, it, the interesting thing about the uh, F-150 Lightning is that it has a thing called a frunk which is uh, where all the tradies put their tools in. But while they're driving Obviously around... the trunk. trunk. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the, yeah. yeah. And, and the tools are actually being charged as they're driving around. So when, when they get to the next job, it, all the tools are ready to go. They're all charged because, yeah, of course, yeah. you know, the days of having extension leads and um, whatever are you know, coming to an end.
1: It also means that these, these batteries, on, these, these computers on wheels can provide a whole lot of data to to city planners, to people everywhere, and they can really understand what distance of people are travelling, where they're travelling to, what's going on, and much yep. more than now. Certainly, um, you know, the, the tag systems have, have made that possible. Mm. But I gather that the city planners of the future are going to have so much information to work with based on mm. these smart cars.
0: Yeah, look, it's, in, it's interesting in that, A few years back, I I think we were getting into the equivalent of an arms race um, with the uh, automated vehicles and, um, you know, it was going to be all over by 2018. Everybody would be um, being ferried around in an automated vehicle. Now, that hasn't happened and there's a number of reasons for that, one of which is social licence, you know, the the confidence of the community to actually allow these uh, vehicles on the road. But what we're seeing now is a much greater focus on connected vehicles. And so what that means is that vehicles that are travelling some kilometres apart on a particular highway are still talking to each other, so they're getting data on uh, where potholes might be, which of course means that that data can also be fed back to the road owner, be it the government or a a private infrastructure company. But it also means that if there's an accident coming up, that sort of data is communicated to other cars across the network who can then take evasive action, uh, go a different route, slow down, uh, whatever that might be. And so technically you should have um, greater flow of traffic uh, but also potentially um, less accidents because there'll be greater predictability across the network as to exactly what's happening.
1: Yeah, well, that would just be fantastic. I live on the Gold Coast, driving to Brisbane, you get halfway there and you come to Mm. a halt because... There's some sort of thing, and uh, my car tells me there's an alert, but doesn't quite tell me how bad yeah. it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a, a whole new world, mm. isn't it? It's just going to be, be terrific. Well, autonomous vehicles is, is interesting, though. I mean, uh, Rio Tinto has been running massive trucks uh, in their uh, uh, Pilbara operations mm. for years now, hundreds of thousands of kilometres, no accidents, nothing at all, mm. um, no problem, with no drivers. Uh, but the social licence mm. is is an mm. issue.
0: Look, I, I think that, um, you know, uh, as a, a father of, 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 well, they're not young anymore, but um, the idea of pulling up at a, a traffic light um, next to a um, an 18-wheeler and looking up and not seeing anyone behind the steering wheel, I think is a little bit daunting. And, uh, you know, so I think eventually we will get to the stage. For example, there will be... Um, truck lanes down the Hume Highway that are uh, populated by driverless um, heavy vehicles. And, in fact, I think you will even see it uh, across the network in Melbourne and Sydney and other places where uh, trucks may be uh, driving at night um, where there's less um, traffic on the roads that um, are automated. But that issue of social licence where uh, governments are prepared to allow it to happen uh, I, I personally think that the capability will be there long before the uh, approval's given. Well,
1: well, that's already the case. I mean, mm. uh, we, we don't need a pilot on a plane at all. We know that. We can, we can bomb the crap out of another country without any pilots, so mm. we can certainly fly without a pilot. It's just no-one wants to get onto a plane without one. So yeah. it's a mental thing. Paul Hodgson, who's the co-host of another podcast we do, says that one day our great-grandchildren will come up to us and say, did you really let humans drive a car? Wasn't that dangerous? were not they distracted by, you know, doing their hair or or changing the radio station? Isn't that just mad? And we'll say, yeah, that was just crazy. And yeah. I'll say, wasn't it dangerous? You say, it was insanely dangerous. We killed lots of people. Yeah. But it took us a long time to change our attitudes on it.
0: Yeah. Joe, look, totally, totally agree with that. I mean, I, I think that in the future, um, kids uh, will say that, that they'll be just absolutely amazed that, People were ever allowed to get behind the steering wheel and, and drive a car. I mean, one of the—I don't think it's too far in the future that um, you know internal combustion engines and um, other cars that require a human to drive it will be a bit like a horse in that people will still have them. They might even actually use them on a weekend, but you wouldn't be uh, taking it to work or doing anything uh, you know from a business perspective on it. It's just one of those things that people will have. As a weekend activity,
1: the transport manager of PepsiCo in Seattle was on a podcast that I listened to, and she was saying that they have twenty thousand vehicles in the uh, the west coast of, uh, and they're moving trucks. You know those those trucks that have the the the, the A frames on the yeah. side, and you pull out the and Pepsi and deliver it, um, and they're They're moving over to electric vehicles, and one area in which they're saving money is that the cars can be, or the trucks can be charged up overnight. They don't need to be refueled. Currently, they need to refuel, and it takes about half an hour to refuel every every day during the shift. So that's twenty thousand multiplied by thirty minutes, so ten thousand hours, five days a week, (laughs) fifty thousand hours. They're picking up just on. The act of refueling, let alone fuel, and not having nufflers, not having, um, you know, all the other stuff that you no longer have in electric vehicles, yeah. um, it's uh, it's staggering. And we're going to start soon seeing that it's economical sense, it's it's good business sense to go to electric vehicles, not just um, not just some environment environment thing.
0: Yeah, just just on that, James, um, I think it's interesting to note too that um, there's a big focus on the energy industry, obviously in terms of emissions and. Of course, we've got a big focus now on renewables and um, doing away with um, some of that um, heavy uh, uh, emitting generation capacity. But, of course, um, transport itself is still accounting for nearly 20% of the um, total emissions and a lot of that is actually in light vehicles. And so from a transport perspective, we're expecting that the focus of governments will start to turn towards the transport industry um, as being uh, the next big thing that um, really needs to be discussed and thought about.
1: Which brings me to probably our last point because we've taken a lot of time, uh, multimodal. Mm. Uh, I know that you're, you've been looking at this for a little while. This is the idea of using um, hub-and-spoke type operations. Mm. We've seen World camp in in Toowoomba, open, a, a, you know, the airport. There's going to be a Western Sydney airport at, uh, at Bradfield, the new city in Bradfield. Avalon's opened already. And there's multimodal hubs happening everywhere. Is that the future? And is there going to be clusters of businesses around those, those multimodals? Is that the, the way that we see it happening? I ask this from a business point of view so that the business people listening can get an idea about what, what, the thinking is around this?
0: Yeah, good question. And look, um, the the whole idea of multimodal hubs around um, rail networks uh, or rail hubs has been one that's really gained some traction over the years and perhaps one of the more well-known ones is uh, Moorbank in Sydney, which is basically between Port Botany out to Moorbank and, and, you know, you can then put it on another rail network or on a truck. Uh, And, of course, the Western Sydney Airport, uh, has been been designed with a very similar concept in mind, in that it's basically uh, going to be a bit of a hub for goods that are coming and going from Sydney. Personally, I, I think it comes back to the issue of uh, what's the what's what's the most efficient way to uh, move your goods or people, for that matter. Um, and generally, uh, you'd like to think that a country like Australia with uh, a good rail network that some of the heavier containers uh, could certainly be moved by rail and then uh, distributed from a an intermodal hub. And uh, where you're really starting to see it, I think, is on inland rail between Melbourne and Brisbane. Uh, there's a big debate now happening in both Brisbane and also Melbourne about where the intermodal hub needs to go and, of course, there will be significant benefits attached to that. Um, if you happen to be based near the, uh, you know, the... Um, the intermodal hub that's going to go out in Western Melbourne, then uh, you'll be doing pretty well.
1: Watch this space is, is yeah. the answer. All right, we better go. One last question for you. Uh, Tenet Reed, who was on our last podcast, he's the head of environment and energy at AI Group. He says that maybe autonomous vehicles um, won't happen because there are so many regulations to do with councils and state. It'll just be easier to start again, and so we'll see flying cars mm. rather than um, cars driving on, along roads. Yeah. He says it kind of cheekily, mm. but yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a fan of the Jetsons. Do you think we're going to see are we going to see flying cars?
0: Oh, look, I, I think we will, and um, you know, the whole idea of drones, uh, taxi drones, is already um, being talked actively uh, about in Melbourne, but. Personally, I think that the, the road network uh, will have longevity mainly because it, it's still a fairly simple, safe way of moving people and freight around the um, around the city. Um, you know, once you start getting uh, movement into a three-dimensional space, it just becomes a little bit more tricky. So, yes, it will happen, uh, but, no, I'm a great believer that um, the road network that we have with us will certainly look at very, very different in the future, but it's here, so.
1: We'll ask your grandkids what it looked like. You know, we'll sit back and, and watch what they do. And they'll do amazing things. I heard this great quote the other day that said, uh, never again will the pace of technology be as slow. The pace of change of technology will be as slow as it is today. Yeah. Isn't that just frightening, you know? Yeah, it is very true. It's going to all happen. Thanks for sharing uh, sharing your thoughts with us. We didn't get to micro-mobility or all sorts of stuff, um, but uh, if you don't own a car, perhaps you should get a scooter or something. Like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks, James. I'll look into it.
1: Thanks for joining us. Thank you.